Great. Good morning. Welcome to all of you participating by Zoom or one of our other streams. Um, some optimistic news that, uh, you know, the churches around our area at least are expanding their openings and there's a hope that we'll be able to do so as well. And maybe eventually, somewhere down the line, the Lord willing, open our classes back up to some live participation. And um, we'd love to have you join us for that if you're able uh, once, once we get that up and running. Um, should be some time yet on that, I think. The push right now, at least here in Southern California, is to try to get the church services as open as possible, um, being that those are essential. It's the place where two or three are gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus, and there he is in our midst. So uh, with, that, with that out of the way, uh, we find ourselves back in 1 Samuel and chapter 9. Now, if you remember, try to bring ourselves up to speed just a little bit, Israel has tragically made demands for a king, and this after the Lord himself has shown to be an incredible king, a, a king beyond imagination, a king who goes out and fights a war on behalf of the people and does so himself, uh, risk, you know, I mean, this, here the Lord is embodied in the ark. Of course, Paul takes up this language famously in Romans 3. You remember that, um, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Well, that propitiation is the hilasteria on the, the, the covering piece of the ark. And so, as the ark is moving around, that's the Lord moving around. When the ark gets captured, that's the Lord getting captured. And you see how there, rightfully there's air quotes there because the Lord intends to be captured. So, the Philistines bring him into the camp and one city after another, he destroys them. <coughs> Excuse me. And wins, wins the war all by himself. I mean, this is what you would want a king. Well, the, well, the people all sit safely at home. And, okay, the ark of the Lord is, is returned to the people. And uh, no, sooner, no sooner than this happens, the people don't realize what the Lord has done. The military defeat, he's worked over the false god of the Philistines, the Dagon, and, and then the Philistine nation. They very ungratefully want their own king. And so you can see that, for example, at the end of 8, there's sort of this chapter 8, verse 19. There's this um, sad conclusion. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Samuel, of course, had warned them that all, all the things that an earthly king are going to do, and it's the exact opposite of what the Lord will do. I mean, the Lord gives and blesses and fights for the people. A king is going to take and take and take some more, and then he's going to make your sons and daughters fight for him. Well, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them king, make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So, you know, this is, a, this is a tragedy. They reject the Lord as the king, and that really is the main point of the narrative. And that is a, is a beautiful setup then for the Lord who is, you know, this is one of the ironies. This is one of the ironies about God is he is... He is so humble-hearted, I mean, in a, in a way that just leaves one speechless. When human beings request, like, deeply insulting things from him, 
I can't help but see that he grants the request and then uses our evil for good and uses, like what I'm thinking of is even in, um, even all the way back in Genesis with Adam and Eve, there's kind of this deep irony. They, t- they take the fruit, or at least Eve does, desiring that she shall become like God. You know, counting equality with God a thing to be grasped. And there's, a, there's an irony that, even, that they go about this the wrong way, but the Lord still gr- ends up granting them this very thing. So he uses this evil for their great good and ends up granting that, that they, they felt, shall in fact become like God. We shall in fact become like God. I mean, Christ is made as we are that we might become as he is. and Not that we become God, of course. We, are, we are always remain creatures. But to be like God, you couldn't be a creature and be more like God to to be made in in his image and refashioned in his image in the person of Christ. So there's this deep sense in which what we request and what we we take, God is so humble-hearted, he he uses our evil for good and and then grants it in exactly the appropriate way. The same is true here for the request for a king. It's deeply insulting to God. It's a rejection of God. Ultimately, what God will do is give us a king in the person of Jesus. And so he allows this request, he works good from our evil, and then he fulfills it in the most profound way. And so this request to have a king is fulfilled in Jesus, who of course is truly our king, he's flesh of our flesh, and yet he remains also God. And uh, as as we've been talking about in Revelation, he's King of kings and Lord of lords, and that's uh, the kings and lords in that scenario are us. It's really an amazing thing to see the heart of God and to see that he is both great and humble, and those two things aren't mutually exclusive, but in God they're simply one. So I want you to just keep those dynamics in mind as we, as we look at these passages and see how God gives them what they want. And how that ultimately is fulfilled for their good, not in Saul or even in David or Solomon or the rest of the kings of the divided kingdom, but ultimately in Christ Jesus who wears the crown of thorns and is the ultimate one who fights for us, is the ultimate one who battles sin, death, and the devil all by himself, crowned in thorns as our king, wins the victory for us, and then grants it to us. Okay, so chapter 9 then. Um, Saul is the one chosen to be king, and we got a little ways into chapter 9, if I'm not mistaken. hope I'm not doing anything too terribly redundant here, because I study it and study it and study it again sometimes and forget exactly where we left off in the class. But um, in, in chapter 9, you remember that Saul, who's described in a very kingly manner, I mean, he's taller than everybody else, he's better looking than everybody else, but he's off about some very practical business here. His father has lost some donkeys, and he and his servant are out trying to track down these, these donkeys that have escaped. And um, maybe we'll pick up at about 11. They, they decide they can't find the donkeys. They know that there's this prophet, Saul, or, or, I mean um, Samuel. And um, so Saul and his servant make this plan. We're going to go to the prophet and ask him where the donkeys are. And, of course... Um, 
we know where that's going to lead. Let's look at verse 11 of chapter 9. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? And, and of course, seer means prophet. They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. And we talked a bit last week about how the high place is usually indicative of idol worship, just not in this case. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. So there's to be this great, beautiful feast up in the high place connected with the worship. Um, you know, you can't, every time you see this, this eating and sacrifice and worship all together, of course it's, it's shining forth what will, the ultimate fulfillment of, of what will be the, the true King Christ Jesus eating with us as true king, as true prophet, as true priest, as true judge, uh, giving us himself that we might partake of his flesh and partake of his blood and so receive forgiveness of sins truly and be seated with him. And so this all shines forth and prefigures that. You know, you just can't help, you just can't help but see it all over the Old Testament Christ and, and what he's going to give shining through even here. So, uh, Verse 14, so they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. Okay, so we gather, we gather some information here about the, the office of king um, that's very important because, again, as, as I've just taken great pains to show that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this, of this kingship and, and of this desire of the people to have a king and then God giving that to us in the most blessed and full possible way. So... The Lord being very specific, you know, the day before, hey, about this same time I'm talking to you now, tomorrow, there's going to come, you know, this guy from the tribe of Benjamin, he's the guy. Now, look at verse um, 16, he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. So, here you see the connection between king and savior. And, of course, ultimately, we see our Lord Jesus, not here, not Saul, that the office of king and savior it's precisely that that belongs to our Lord Jesus. So, he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. I mean, I, and again, too, is it Saul of his own power that's going to do this? No, it is in fact the Lord Jesus who is going to do this. It's just in the, in the person of Saul, we see the Lord Jesus. In the office that Saul is going to hold, we see the true office bearer, our Lord Jesus. He's going to be the one that, that saves the people from, in this case, from the hand of the Philistines. In our case, of course, from sin, death, and the devil. But it's important to see that, that Christ is right here in the text. Not even imported, it's just, he's just right here. Verse 16, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. You know, a beautiful poetic expression of, 
of God paying attention to the cry of his people, even when the cry is wicked, as we've discussed. Verse 17, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. In when our Lord Jesus comes, it's not, it's not Samuel who points to him, but John the Baptist. And in the same way that Samuel doesn't know who, you know, doesn't know that Saul is supposed to be the king, the Lord's anointed, which actually means Messiah. Saul doesn't know until the Lord points it out. The same thing is true with John the Baptist. Take a look at this in, in John's Gospel. In John chapter, um, chapter 1, it's really incredible. Um, John the Baptist doesn't know who the Messiah is. The Lord has simply said to him, um, go and baptize, and as you're baptizing everyone, you know, it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's preparatory for the coming of the Messiah. But the Lord says to John the Baptist, as you baptize everyone, the one on whom you see my spirit, capital S, my spirit, descend and remain. He it is uh, who is my chosen, my Messiah, my anointed. And there you can see the anointing of Jesus, not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit. Um, but that's, that's how John knows. So when John baptizes Jesus and sees the Spirit descend and remain, then John knows this is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. This is the one um, who comes after me but precedes me because he is always and ever before me. He is, he is uh, you know, eminent. He's the true king. And so you've got these parallels here. I mean, no doubt about it. And again, don't lose sight of the fact that a king in, in 1 Samuel and really throughout the whole Old Testament is, the, is an anointed one. He's the anointed one. He's literally in Hebrew the Messiah. And so for Jesus to be the anointed one, the one anointed by the Holy Spirit, he is the capital M Messiah. He is, he is the one who is both underneath all of these other messiahs and before all these other messiahs and the one to whom all these other small m messiahs point, um, his anointing in the Jordan River by John. All right, so, so the Lord here too has to indicate to Samuel, hey, this is the guy. So verse 17, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people, which that's kind of a funny word, restrain. There's actually some, some things in here that are quite humorous. I, I would assume that the author means for us to take them as humorous, but this is almost, this is almost one of them. It's a strange language. What's the study notes say? Yeah. Though usually considered a negative action, it indicates a special form of ruling by keeping in check or within bounds through the Lord's divine regulations. Yeah, restraining them. That is, it's as if to say the Lord has, the Lord has already entered into covenant with them made himself their God and wed himself to them and they're constantly trying to flee away from him and so the king's job is to restrain them, to, to hold them to Yahweh, uh, to keep them in his blessings. 
Verse 18, then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me where is the house of the seer? This always reminds me of um, when Luke Skywalker arrives and is like, he's talking to Yoda. He's, you know, do you know where the Jedi Master Yoda is? And Yoda's like, yeah, follow me. And so <laughs> he doesn't know he's talking to Yoda. And here um, Saul doesn't know he's talking to the seer. So he approaches Samuel and says, hey, where, where's the prophet? Verse 19, Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will, take, and will tell you all that is on my mind. I mean, this is incredible because, again, you have this meal in the context of worship that precedes Saul's coronation. And again, you just can't help but see like the parallel or how shining underneath and through this is, is Jesus eating with his disciples the Passover um, right before his coronation, right before he is enthroned on the cross and crowned with thorns. It's like a meal, a, a, a worshipful meal, if you will, um, precedes the coronation and a worshipful meal in, the, in the, the Passover with Jesus on the night he's betrayed precedes the coronation of him on the cross. Um, verse, verse 20. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I skipped ahead. The latter half of verse 19. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. <laughs> As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. Yeah, Saul's got a new mission. It's not finding three donkeys. It's going to be finding and restraining 12 tribes. And for whom is, is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for your father's house? This is a rough translation and hard to understand. I'm going to just point you to the study note. Um, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel, or, the study note says, and on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you? In other words, Israel's hopes are set on Saul's future. You know, Saul doesn't have a clue, of course, and the people don't have a clue. It's Saul in particular. They've just set their hopes upon a king, and an earthly king at that. Like, now you can hear the psalm, set not your, your trust in princes, and boy, is that apropos for us today. It's like even as, a, even as the people of God, we want an earthly political solution. Not, maybe not so much a physical king, but we want an earthly political solution. And It's not to say we shouldn't be involved in politics. It's not to say we shouldn't push forth for what's right and have that left-hand kingdom, that civil sphere presence. Obviously, we have a robust theology of that. But we must engage in that in such a way that we don't fall into the sin of ancient Israel, putting our trust in an earthly king and earthly government and laws and that kind of thing to save us. No, we must have the Lord and him alone. So there's certainly a take-home point in, in this for us along those lines. Well, the study note continues. Um, you know, Israel's hopes are set on Saul's future. What are a few donkeys in comparison? And it also suggests that every desirable thing, whether wealth or power, will be Saul's. So again, the, the translation is just not that, that great. But the study note, I think, is helpful in getting the, the sense across. 
Um, verse 21, Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Which is beautiful because it fits the, re it, the reversal motif. Ben, I mean, and here Saul, to his credit, he sees himself as like from one of the least of the tribes of Israel, Benjamin, and, um, and his unique clan, his own clan within Benjamin, the humblest of all, and him and nobody. And I mean, there's some, there's some truth to this, um, of course. He's not just being humble. There's some truth to this. But the Lord has chosen him, and so this lowly one is going to be made mighty. There's a reversal. And of course, with Saul, there's a tragic re-reversal where this mighty one then is cast down. Um, but it perfectly fits Samuel's overarching theological motif that we see back in the hand. I mean, really the, really the song of Hannah um, is the theology of, of all of First and Second Samuel. I mean, it happens to be like the primary way Jesus preaches to the reversal. Every time I, yeah, well, I become more and more convinced of that. The more time I spend in the Gospels, the more I see that that's like Jesus' way of doing law and gospel is the, is the reversal. Ah, oh, I skipped ahead. So, so Saul says, look, I'm, I think you got the wrong guy. I'm a nobody. Why are you speaking to me in this way? Verse 22, Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a piece, excuse me, a place at the head of those who have been invited who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg. The leg was reserved for, like, it was the best piece. It was the, I think normally the priest would eat it, but here it's given to Saul. In other words, he's given every honor. He's given the seat of honor. He's given the portion of honor. There's kind of this brilliant type and motif here, too, of how, how God takes we who are just flesh and gives us new birth and spirit, and we who are not a nation, he makes us into a nation, not a people into a people, and not priests into priests, and not a kingdom into a kingdom, and that we might also reign with Christ. So he, he is king of kings, and he makes us kings. And there's, this, there's kind of this beautiful picture as well in this of how God takes us unworthily, unwittingly, sits us in the best seat at his table, and feeds us with the best food the very bread of immortality and the very wine of life, his body and blood given and shed for us, for our forgiveness. And through forgiveness, we receive salvation and communion with him and the beatific vision. And Saul just stumbles into this, and uh, so do we. It's all the Lord's doing. So yeah, the, Saul, gets, Saul gets the honored seat and the honored food. And Samuel said, see what was kept is set before you. That is what was set apart is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. I mean, could you imagine just being Saul, how, how dumbfounded this would be? One minute, I mean, how dumbfounding this would be. You're, you're one minute you're looking for these, you're on this futile mission for three donkeys. And the next minute you're like, I don't know what it would even be like. There's no equivalent. You're like at the White House at the head of the table getting served a, 
you know, some outrageous dinner and being, you know, be, it's like, yeah, just on a human level, it's shocking. And of course, it's meant to show us too that God's treatment of us when we're called into his kingdom, it's the same, the same exact treatment. It's just, if we ever really could truly see what it is that God does for us in the Lord's Supper, for example, it's all this and even more. All right, um, the very last part of verse 24. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof. This is normal because it was hot there, so um, at least this time of the year. And so people would commonly make their beds on the, on the roofs. And, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up! that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, that is, let him go on ahead, your servant. And when he passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. So up until this point, it's just like Saul's kind of won this strange lottery and there's these enigmatic statements about Israel desiring him and perhaps him being greatly enriched and he kind of says I'm nobody and then he gets invited to this feast where he's basically the honored guest and um, they put him up for the night and, and none of it's actually been made known to him explicitly and it's going to be now. So chapter 10 verse 1, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, and kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? Yeah, so, so here, you have, here you have an anointing that makes him the Messiah. You know, all through the Psalms, the anointed one, there's sometimes this, this double meaning of like the anointed one, the Messiah being the, the king, David, for example, but then the, being representative of the, and sitting in the seat of the one who is the true king, the capital M Messiah, Jesus. So you've got um, the anointed one. And you can think too of how we're made kings, you know, and this was more explicit at other times and other places in the history of the church where at baptism, um, not only are you you're baptized, but then you're anointed. You're made into a, a small M Messiah, an anointed one. You're christened, and so too you're anointed for kingship, that you also reign and rule with Christ, who gives us the victory. So, I mean, you can see even here, like, all of that shining through the text. You know, right along with the kiss of peace, the kiss of fellowship, even here. Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people, Israel? I wonder if it's here that the study notes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ch take, a look at, take a look at chapter 10, verse 1, that study note um, in respect to oil. Used in biblical times for food preparation, as fuel for lamps, for medicinal purposes, and as a cleansing agent, particularly associated with the tabernacle and priesthood. Yeah, it really is hard to overstate, like, oil was used for absolutely everything. And to some extent, still even even in, the, in this geographical area, continues to be used, I mean, much more widely used than we use it. But back in those times, it was literally used for everything. 
So oil becomes, in other words, what I guess what I'm trying to say is oil itself and anointing itself becomes this symbolically rich thing because it can mean, it, it can mean sort of like all of these things. It can mean like preparation. It can be used for like, like um, sport or uh, war or looking your best, um, dressing up, um, like strengthening like the idea of burning fuel and that, like the strength and the energy, medicinal purpose, like healing, um, cleansing, of course. Like um, in the ancient world, you'd, you'd wash with water, not usually every day, and then you'd put on oil because the oil would kind of s uh, seal your skin against um, germs and that kind of So it's a cleansing agent um, and a, pro a protective, preventative agent in that sort of way. Um, the medicinal, it also then is infused with perfumes, and so it becomes like a, a sweet-smelling thing. So oil has just, it's such a rich, symbolically loaded thing, and I'm, I'm so encouraged by the, like the pastoral care companion that's come out recently in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, where you sort of see a use of this oil um, even at the time of baptism. Um, at the time of, you know, if someone's sick, then there's an anointing with oil. And because it carries this rich symbolic imagery that's, again, if you're a biblically literate person, that oil is reminding you of all the blessings and benefits of God, multifaceted, given to you in your baptism, given to you by Christ Jesus himself, um, poured out upon you all the days of your life. And so what a rich thing for the church to recover uh, with this understanding. And the study note continues too, like look, look even even beyond that to then its biblical usage. So anointing with oil was also used to identify prophets. And then there's all kinds of biblical examples here, but prophets, priests, and especially kings as divinely equipped for their prophetic task. I mean, interesting there because you see the what's sometimes called like the threefold office of Christ. I actually think it's more broad than that, but it's, it suffices insofar as it's helpful, but that Christ is prophet, priest, and king as the anointed one, as the Messiah. Um, this biblical background speaks to that reality, testifies to that reality. Yeah, just a little further down in that study note, the study note even reads, by contrast in Scripture, the capital A anointed, capital O one, the anointed one is Christ. I mean, that's what, Christ, that's what Messiah, Mashiach, and, and Christ, Christos means. It means anointed one as head of the church who appoints faithful servants for his people. <laughs> Beware of leaders who claim a special quote-unquote anointing. Yeah, right, the Pentecostal thing. That's completely abiblical. It's just it's silly. Well, and it's, de it's a demonic parody. <laughs> and the, the note here is funny too. Saul likely knelt so that Samuel could reach his head for anointing. <laughs> Got to love what the editors choose to put in and what they choose to omit. That detail is there. Okay. So, back to chapter 10, 
verse 1, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord. Even that language of prince sort of indicates like God retains his kingship proper. You know, but you're gonna, so you're anointed to serve as um, prince and reign over the people of the Lord. Even there too, look at the reminder. Not your people, not the people of Israel, but the people of the Lord. They belong to the Lord. That's so fitting, like even for the pastoral office, where when Christ institutes the pastoral office, he doesn't say, feed your sheep. Your sheep. He says, feed my sheep. And it's just a very helpful reminder that I mean, the pastoral office isn't, is to fulfill the office of Christ and to serve the sheep that don't belong to the small P pastor, but only to the capital P pastor, namely Christ himself. So too here for the kingly office. Like when you're anointed as a king, you're just a small K king you know, in the left-hand kingdom in the civil sphere, and you're serving those who belong to the capital K king, you know, the Lord. So plenty of reminder here, even in the verbiage, that Samuel uses. Now this is a private anointing and a private ceremony. Uh, so we're going to have to say, see um, when Saul is publicly uh, shown to be king and publicly coronated as it were. But um, here it's private and here the reminder is intensely that these people to whom you're going to, you know, over whom you're going to reign, these, um, these belong to the Lord. Yeah, look at that. The Lord anointed you to be prince over yeah, prince over his people, Israel, and you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. I mean, namely, he's going to be God's instrument through which God, the Lord, saves them. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Yeah, because look, like why is the sign so helpful? I mean, you're just supposed to trust the word of this prophet. Um, yeah, I don't. So, so there's this sign that then is given to um, to Saul, so that he can be personally assured that because the sign has taken place, and no one can arrange this sign but God, and because this sign takes place exactly as as it's foretold, then. God, by confirming and doing that sign, also shows that he is confirming and doing this anointing. And it is, in fact, the Lord's will. So, I mean, this is a great, this is a great thing because God, again, could just say to Saul, hey, I said it, I expect to be believed. But he offers him this personal confirmation and this, this sign, as it were, that, Paul, or that Saul can grasp hold of and then cling to that and say, therefore, my kingship must also be valid and must also be the will of God. And here, here you see again, like kind of in a microcosm, albeit in an all different way, just an analogous kind of way. You see a sacrament. You see a personal sacrament whereby um, there is a there is a word and a sign that Saul can grasp hold of that this is in fact what God is doing. Um, you can then see the parallel in in the word and sign of what God does to me in baptism, does to you in baptism, does to us in the Lord's at the Lord's supper. That there's a word and a sign that we can grasp hold of and say. See, this, this indeed is, our, is the Lord's will for us. Um, here, here's the sign, verse 2. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And um, 
Yeah, we'll wait on that. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there uh, farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Um, this is a terebinth tree. I'm looking at the study note now that grew on the way to Bethel and must have been a well-known landmark. I mean, thus it's the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel. I mean, this is all a very interesting language. Maybe we can talk about this in a minute because Bethel, of course, means house of God. And this is the place where Jacob had seen a stairway to heaven, which the stairway to heaven, of course, is none other. I mean, this is what Jesus says in John 3. Uh, yeah, not John 3. I think it's John 2, um, that he is that stairway, that what Jacob saw is him and that his disciples will come to see that as well. And they too, they will see angels ascending and descending on him. That is, that he, they will come to see what Jacob saw. Is precisely what, what our Lord is saying. So this is all significant because, again, as one would expect, Jesus is at the center of this whole enterprise. I mean, he is king of kings and has been from the foundation of the world. So when Israel first gets her king, you're going to see all kinds of like Jesus shining through um, this account. Yeah, so they're nowhere else than like, you know, you're going to see these three men going up to God at Bethel. And look at the language of like going up. I mean, I'm sure it's geographically true, but it's also like symbolic. It has a, a symbolically, it's symbolically true. It's indicating something more. Um, they will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another, look how specific this is, another carrying three loaves of bread. I mean, if you're, <laughs> if you're saw, you're like counting. Yep, yep. And another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, uh, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim. That means the hill of God. I mean, again, just think, yeah. I mean, all of this portends to and pushes for like the hill of God and the city on the hill in Jerusalem and the place of the crucifixion. And like, again, it's just hints and shadows, but you can kind of see it shining through the tapestry of this text. Where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And um, yeah, see the Philistines, we'll see on the map in a minute, the Philistines are constantly encroaching and taking over and enslaving and being pushed back and so that's what you're seeing here. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Now, this can sound like kind of like, I don't know, this, this weird like ecstatic, Pentecostal, mystical kind of weirdness and, and like super spontaneous. That's not actually what you see if you pay attention to the context. Like this is a liturgical happening. And, the, and the, yeah, there are certainly instruments, but this is not the kind of ecstatic paganism thing going on here. I mean, if it were, if it were even in that form, the Lord wouldn't use it for this purpose. So just pay attention to that as you read this. You know, Don't read it through your 1960s, 1970s lenses. All right, so... Uh, the prophets are coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Look at verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. 
in terms of Jesus, his, his anointing and the Spirit rushing upon him are one. They're one thing. When he comes up out of the waters of the Jordan, the Spirit descends upon him, rushes upon him, and then drives him into battle with Satan. You know, the, this here you're, we're going to see with Saul, the Spirit descends upon him and drives him into battle, you know, with the Ammonites and then the Philistines. So, the, you know, think of how this is fulfilled all the more in our Lord Jesus, who's anointed with the Spirit, and the Spirit is poured out upon him. And, um, of course, the Lord prophesies, the Lord speaks God's word and goes out to battle for us on our behalf. So verse 6, then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. This is all being told to Saul so that when these things happen, Saul will be certain that this is indeed the Lord. And you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now we're reflecting on this in terms of Christ, and that's, that's, I think that that's the primary reflection, no doubt. We can see here too what we become in Christ that as Christ is not only baptized and anointed with the Spirit and has the Spirit rush upon him and goes out to battle for us, he also then gives, us, gives this very thing to us, anointing us and making us, conforming us into his image, making us little Christ, baptizing us just as he is baptized. As the Spirit is poured out upon him by the Father, so he pours the Holy Spirit out upon us in holy baptism, and that spirit rushes upon us, thus making us prepared to do battle with the principalities and powers of darkness. Like Ephesians 6, you know, coming to mind. Now, then too, we prophesy, that is, we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Uh, prophecy can certainly include uh, events about the speaking to events about the future, but it isn't necessarily that. That's too narrow of a view of prophesy of prophecy. Prophesying is speaking the word of the Lord, whether it has to do with the past, present, or future. It's, it's speaking the word of the Lord. That's effectively prophecy. I mean, false prophecy is is speaking not the word of the Lord, speaking contrary to the word of the Lord or other than the word of the Lord. That's that's what, a, that's what a false prophet is, to be a prophet, to prophesy here in the, in the generic or wider sense, is simply to speak the word of the Lord. I mean, in this sense, you're, a pastor prophesies every Sunday. Um, in this sense, you, you, albeit in maybe a different way, prophesy at your kitchen table when you speak the word of the Lord to your family at devotions. Well, so all this, all this to say that in Saul we see... I would say the primary emphasis, we ought to see Christ shining through this, and this text pointing us to that ultimate fulfillment of Christ being anointed in, in the Jordan. But then in a secondary way, we ought to see Christ anointing us and the Spirit rushing upon us in exactly the way the New Testament um, scriptures describe. And that especially true for this phrase, and be turned into another man. That prefigures exactly what happens to us in baptism. That which is flesh is flesh, and suddenly we're baptized by water and the Spirit, and that which is spirit is spirit, so we become an entirely different thing. We are very much um, turned into another man, turned into another person. Verse 7, Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. 
In other words, you're not really going to mess this up. God is with you, and this, these things are going to, this isn't a test. Um, these things are going to happen, and they're a demonstration that the, that the Lord is indeed with you. Verse 8, then go before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming um, to you to offer burnt offerings and to uh, sacrifice peace offerings. Again, here you hear the specific voice of Samuel coming out. You know, he's going to follow him to uh, Gilgal. Let me see if there's any... Yeah, not here. The notes on Gilgal are coming. Um, so, so that's the plan. And then seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So he's got to hang out seven days before Samuel's going to catch up to him. And, you know, in the meantime, this is going to be a proof to Saul, a personal proof to Saul that the Lord is in fact with him. This is in fact the Lord's will. Samuel will show up and then off they'll go. Okay, then verse 9, we actually get back into the narrative. When he, namely Saul, turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. I mean, that's an amazing picture too. Like there's, there's Samuel, he hears Samuel's word, he receives it, believes it, he turns, and as he turns to go in faithfulness, God gives him another heart. I mean, boy, that is like exactly, exactly what it's like to hear the word of the Lord and to turn and go to, to see it fulfilled, to do it and to see it fulfilled, and uh, you receive another heart. So, uh, quite a lot of, of like dense, um, dense theology in this section when we understand these things pertaining to Christ and um, the office of Christian by extension and by connection to Christ. All right, so, so Saul um, turns, gets another heart, um, and then look what this says. And all these signs came to pass that day. Okay, so now we hear about that. When they came, they being Saul and his servant, when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. In other words, just as it was foretold, so it is now happening. Verse 11, And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Now, isn't this very similar and very interesting? From time to time, people will say of Jesus, like, is not this the son of Joseph? You know, do we not know his brothers? And that kind of thing. That's what's going on here. Um, and the same way that they simply assumed Jesus to, to, to just be a guy from Nazareth and the son of a carpenter and a carpenter himself. And suddenly he's saying all these things. He's prophesying and teaching and and as, not as the scribes, but as one who has authority. And they're like, wait a minute, who is this guy? How is he speaking this way without any formal education? You know, the, the same kind of thing is happening here with Saul. I mean, what we're going to see in spades, you don't even really have to read but between the lines, is apparently Saul wasn't a very spiritual guy. Uh, you know, not necessarily a negative thing, just really wasn't in his wheelhouse. And now suddenly he's prophesying and people are being like, hey, isn't this the guy we knew? Isn't this the son of Kish? What's come over him? Um, so that's what this question is. What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? I mean, they can hardly believe what they're seeing and hearing. This is the least likely guy. Uh, which again, as I said, like you see Christ shining through this text, 
for all for all manner of different reasons. I mean, it's not that Christ was not spiritual and became spiritual. That is not the point of comparison. Um, if we want to talk about not being spiritual and becoming spiritual, we talk about the transformation of the Christian on account of receiving the Holy Spirit. Um, but the point of comparison is rather in the in the eye of the beholders. That just as these people behold. Behold Saul and can't believe what's coming out of his mouth. So Jesus comes to his own and his own receive him not. They can't believe what's coming out of his mouth. So then um, is Saul also among the prophets? Then verse 13, when he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. All right, so everything is going exactly according to plan. Verse 14, Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. Look at that, period, end quote. <laughs> kind of left out the, the major part. But about the matter of the kingdom, well, right, namely that he's to reign in the kingdom, of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Yeah, so this is, this is really one of the interesting parts in terms of the narrative. I don't know that there's anything to make of it necessarily. But you see, you see Saul being this non-spiritual guy and this spiritual guy and this kind of bold guy publicly uh, prophesying, and then all of a sudden very timid and very shy and doesn't even want to like, tell his uncle like, the main part. And so you kind of see this back and forth with Saul throughout this narrative. I mean, it actually gets hilarious here in a minute. You'll see what I mean. Um, you know, is he, I, again, I don't know exactly what to make of it other than that's just who he is. He's kind of this humble, shy guy, at least at this point. And I suppose that becomes tragic later on down the line. Uh, verse 17, now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzpah and hmm. oh yeah, okay, sorry I got distracted by one of my study notes. I want to make sure I didn't Miss sharing anything wonderful with you. So Mizpah, the study note says, literally means watchtower. It's used for several locations throughout Israel. Mizpah in Benjamin is the site where the Lord... Yeah, that's kind of the key because Mizpah is like confusing. It is used for several locations throughout Israel. Mizpah in Benjamin is the site where the Lord helped his people defeat the Philistines. Um, and that's ref referring back to chapter 7. And where Samuel had been acclaimed judge. So in other words, this is kind of a, a central place and hub to be sure. The irony of Saul's kingship should not be missed. God had led the people to victory. <laughs> God had led the people to victory at Mitzpah as their king. But now they cried out for another king. So you have to love the Lord here because he's like, yeah, I'll give you a king at the very place where I won the battle and was your king. And now you're choosing another king? Okay, I've warned you. You still want it. 
we're going to do it right here at the very place where I definitively showed my my true kingly self, my uh, humble self, you know, uh, self-sacrifice and self-service to you. So this is great. And of course, what the Lord, I mean, this is like law and gospel. I mean, the Lord's certainly going to accuse them and point out their idolatry and their foolishness. And I mean, this is not going to go well for them. Um, and yet all this evil God is still going to graciously use for good. Both of those things are true. That's both the law and the gospel there. Is God's going to deliver and save them through Saul and bless and keep them anyway and ultimately bring Jesus uh, to, to, to Israel. So, Mizpah, then verse 18. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, <laughs> I brought up Israel out of Egypt. Why is the Lord doing this? Because this is why he is their God and he is their king and he is the one who has saved them and rescued them from their inception all the way to the present. I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. In other words, your very existence and every battle that it took to get you to this place I have one for you. I have delivered you through all these things. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. I mean, how could you, how could you A, be more insulting, B, be more stupid? Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your households. <laughs> wow. Well, that's quite the setup for this, uh, <laughs> for this coronation, isn't it? Um, for this public anointing of, uh, well, this public showing forth and proclamation that Saul is going to be their king. All right, so how does this go down? Um, verse 20 then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by lot. Okay, we're going to see this recur, this by lot, by lot, by lot. Um, we don't know the exact mechanism, but by lot would, would look to our 21st century eyes like by chance, like by a roll of a dice or by pulling the long or the short straw or something like that. Like it would look like by chance, but of course, how do, how do God's people see it, Old Testament and New Testament? They see Lot as, as like God is governing this and God is dictating this. So you've got 12 tribes, you've probably got 12 lots, and God singles out Benjamin. The people are crying out for a king, like, okay, where's our king going to come from? So lots are drawn, and it's Benjamin. I mean, again, this is a proof. This is a proof to Saul. This is a proof to all the people. Saul's already been anointed. He already knows what's going to happen. <laughs> and it's quite humorous as we're going to see where he is because he knows how this is going to go down and happen. Um, but yeah, so this is all. This is all done by miracle. I mean, this is all God done by God's um, doing in the presence of the people. All right, so, um, yeah, so Benjamin is taken by Lot. Well, who out of Benjamin? That's verse 21. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the uh, 
match rites was taken by Lot. And the, the Septuagint adds, finally he brought the family of the match rites near man by man. So in other words, the family of, um, of Kish is brought, is taken by Lot. Look at that. The, the clan of the match rites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. So publicly, Lot by Lot by Lot, like God is showing who he wants to be king. Okay, this is great, verse 21. But when they sought him, that is Saul, the son of Cush, he could not be found. Why? He already knew where all this Lot stuff was going to go. It was going to point to him. And he didn't, he was too shy, he was too embarrassed, he didn't want to do it. So verse 22, so they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? Like, in other words, where is he? And the Lord said, probably through the prophet Samuel, but we don't know for sure, probably through the prophet Samuel, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So, ah, I, this is where Saul's really lovable. You have to take these moments while you can get them. Because he's seen the miracle of the Lord. He's had the Holy Spirit, you know, like, like how everything lined up as a sign unto him. And everything happened just as the Lord said, and the Holy Spirit filled him, and, and you know, all this stuff, like, it's just, like, but when it comes down to it, and he's to be publicly recognized as a king, we don't know what the baggage is, but he run, runs and hides in the baggage. <laughs> it's just great. Really enjoyable. Okay, so, <laughs> verse 23. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. Like, was is he peeking out of the baggage? And the Lord says, "There he is in the baggage." Could you imagine? Like, if you're if you're him, you're like, "Oh no!" Try to hold as still as you can. They come running over, start peeling the baggage away. Verse 23. They ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, "Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen?" There is none like him among all the people. Now, this is interesting. Like, why this detail? Why this detail? Well, in one, in at least one aspect, the point is, like, it's going to be the reversal. Here's a guy who looks like he should be the king. Like, he dresses the part. He's taller and handsomer and stronger than everybody else. But... Looks can be deceiving, and he who looks like he is something is going to turn out to be nothing, while the Lord who, in the eyes of the Israelites, has looked to be nothing, turns out to be everything. So, to be sure, that's at least a part of why we're continually told how tall Saul is. But now look at this other, look at this other line right in 24. There is none like him among all the people. Yeah. So, I mean, you can think of like Jesus, too, in the reversal motif, who there's no form or comeliness, no, you know, that we, should, that we should desire him, kind of out of Isaiah 53. Like, Jesus is king, but looking at him, you wouldn't, like, there's nothing inherently kingly about him. And yet he's, so there's that sort of like lowliness to high, whereas um, Saul is high, brought low. There's that reversal motif to be sure. But in the first king that's chosen, it is said there is none like him among all the people. And that is so prophetically true of Christ. Like even though he is a man, there is none like him among all the people. You know, again, Christ truly holds the office of king long before Saul. 
And so the fact that Saul is chosen and this is said of him, it's like only true insofar as he sits in the office and only true in its own unique idiosyncratic way, but all the more true of Christ, who is indeed um, unique. There is none like him, capital H, him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. So again, you cannot see this text without seeing like the face of Jesus behind it and Christ, uh, our king, crowned in thorns behind this text and shining through this text. Then you're seeing it rightly. Then you're seeing it rightly. Okay, well, I see that I'm, ooh, I'm actually a minute over. Sorry for keeping you a minute late. I'll close up here today, and we'll simply pick up with the last few verses of chapter 10 next week. The Lord be with you. All right, thanks, David. Thank you to everyone on Zoom checking it out. Hmm. Boy, that's yeah, that's interesting. I, to be honest with you, I've just never considered it before, and there there may well be a kind of connection there, a kind of intentional connection. We'll have to. I'll, I'll try to keep that in mind, and as we inevitably march along toward that, I'll see if there's any uh, any intentional connection that I can discern. Oh, I was really curious. Thanks for bringing that up, David. I'm, I'm sure there. I'm sure you could certainly make something of it, no doubt. But what exactly that is, I'm not sure. Yeah. 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 Right. Right, it is a, it is a, because um, the, the new covenant prophesied in Jeremiah is, is that um, the law is written in our hearts, and so to simply go out and, and do what our hand finds to do is then to just do the law, um, spontaneously, not in the sense of without any energy or participation on our part, that's not what spontaneous means, but that the, the, the power, the drive, the will to do so, the strength to do so, all comes from the Lord and then is all in accord with the Lord's Word. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It fits that pattern, that type very well. Great point, David. It's possible. I don't. Yeah, it's possible. I don't know. I don't really. I. It may be. Let's see. I'm just looking at the study note to see if they indicate anything in that direction. Saul's modesty and shyness apparently returned, and he cannot be found until the Lord reveals his hiding place. Reluctantly, he assumed the kingly responsibilities to the acclamation of the people. Yeah, I don't. 
I don't know. I don't know. It could be. I just... He's also shy back in 16, you know, where he, um, about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. I, if you connect those two things, you kind of connect the whole, um, the humility back in um, chapter 9, verse 21, am I not a Benjamin from the least, a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? I, to me, as far as my mileage goes, it doesn't seem to be a theological take. It doesn't seem to be that he reluctantly takes the kingship because, hey, this really belongs to the Lord, and you guys are doing a stupid thing, and I repent of this, and um, I take it reluctantly uh, I, because the Lord has told me to take it. I don't know. I don't see anything that deep. It's possible. I guess I guess my take on it is I don't see anything that deep. I see more like, um, like, like just sort of personal... Like personality, like um, shyness. You know, when I link those three verses together, I think that's more what I see. But you know, again, may, I mean, you know, I'm just giving like that's such, like that's fully my opinion. You know what I mean? I'm not I'm not trying to say anything dogmatic. You you might have a, a great case to make um, in support of uh, like a repentance kind of theory. Yeah, I, I sure. Yeah, it is fascinating. I'm, I'm really actually looking forward to this. I mean, there's just not enough time in the day. I can't tell you how long it's been since I've studied Saul and this stuff. So, um, I mean, I'm really looking forward to see, like, how these themes develop myself. Um, it's, it's literally been years since I've been through this part, through this part of the scriptures.